If you were with us last week, you'll know that uh, we had a chalkboard for a title card. This week we've updated, uh, and this isn't even the 21st century because now I know Callie and Caroline can tell me I've got all kind of uh, fancy um, uh, technology that you use now. But when I was a kid, uh, the, the new little dry erase markers, those were the thing. Um, we still had some classrooms that, uh, that were still stuck in the the archaic days, uh, not to insult anybody, that uh, I know most of us, most of the people here probably had chalkboards when you were in school. Um, few of the classrooms at Union still had the old uh, chalkboards, but everybody was updating and upgrading to the new whiteboards uh, when I had first started school. And uh, it was just like this awe-inspiring thing that you could just take this magic marker that people, you know, as a kid, you know, we would use markers at home and I would just color everything and it wouldn't come off. Um, so I was told never to put a marker on anything. Um, I actually colored the TV screen one time with, um, that didn't, but it was one of those TV screens that had like the vinyl thing. So it had all the ridges, um, that didn't end well, but, uh, I mean, I, I, I didn't get in trouble. <laughs> Who am I kidding? Um, but, uh, it wasn't a good thing. I shouldn't have done that, but, um, uh, I didn't want to use markers, but then when you get to school, you have this magic board that you can just go and then it can just take this eraser and it just all cleans off so nicely. So a lot less dusty and a lot, uh, less messy than chalk, right? Um, because a dry erase board, as long as it's been clean, use the spray and everything, uh, you can just erase it right off, can't you? Keep that image in your mind. It'll come in handy later on in the message. But if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 today. I would like to read a few verses from that passage to get us started. Uh, and then we'll uh, break down most of the chapter in our time together. Uh, later on, we'll be turning over to Luke 17. So if you want to put a marker bookmark there. That will come in handy, but I want to look at Ephesians 4, verse number 1 through 7 to begin our time together. One of my favorite chapters of the Bible, one of the most important chapters of the Bible for the church, and that's who we are. So, uh, so, uh, so nice of the Lord to consider us so important to write a whole chapter of the Bible just for us. There's a lot more just for us, but this one's even more important than most. So Ephesians 4, this is the Apostle Paul writing to us. He says, therefore, or I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called or the name that you have been given, which is the church. With all lowliness and gentleness, or all humility and gentleness, with long-suffering, or that's patience, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And here's why that's so important. There's one body and there's one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Or if it had been written in the South, y'all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's Give. So as we'll get back into this text in a little bit, I want you to notice how many times you see the word one. That's pretty important. And also notice how it all kind of crescendos into this verse about all. So we have an idea of being one and having one, having a similar God, a similar faith, a similar calling, but then it applying to us all. So there's a connection there that I think will become pretty clear to us. 
later on in our time. But to, to get us started, I want to start with the same question that I asked you last week. If you weren't with us, we'll catch you up quickly. But last week, we asked a question that maybe was controversial to you. Maybe now that you know where we went with it, it's not. But if you weren't with us, maybe it'll be a little bit controversial. Last week, we asked a question, what do you think keeps God up at night? And when we first saw that question, maybe you thought it was silly uh, because God doesn't sleep. Maybe you thought it was heretical because God doesn't get tired. God does not worry or fret over anything. So why would he ever stay up at night if he did have to sleep? And knowing that he doesn't have to sleep, this question is just completely off base. Which we dug around a little bit though. And we discovered something very important. That Jesus, God in flesh, Jesus actually had a sleepless night in his earthly ministry. Yeah, which we didn't uh, give enough attention to that reality last week, but for Jesus to have a sleepless night, that's a pretty big deal, isn't it? I mean, if God in flesh had a sleepless, restless night, that should get our attention and should, we should flag that in our Bible, shouldn't we? I mean, we're talking about the guy who could sleep through anything. God in flesh, what could keep him up? What could stress him out? What could string him out? What could cost him a good night's rest? Come on, don't you remember that time that that mini hurricane came on the disciples when they were on the boat in the Sea of Galilee? Jesus and the disciples were sailing across the waters and, and that storm came up out of nowhere. The disciples began to panic. The boat began filling up with water and they began trying to dump buckets overboard to keep the boat afloat. And then Matthew, who was there, gives us this this incredible insight. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waters, but he, that's Jesus, was asleep. Matthew's trying to get our attention there. How could anybody sleep through this kind of a storm? If you were a native of this area, these storms meant business, and many didn't come back from these storms. But Jesus slept like a baby right through it. That's how concerned Jesus was over the storm. He knew it was coming, probably could have prevented it, and yet was able to sleep right through it. Matthew goes on. But they went and woke him up, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Literally, we're dying, Jesus. Do not care. Do not understand what's at stake here. How could you sleep through this? Jesus says, why are you so afraid, O you of little faith? Remember back a few verses ago, it said the storm arose and then the sun arose. And they thought the storm was a big deal. But then the son of God woke up and rebuked the wind and gave a great calm to the sea. And then, of course, they marveled. Of course they did. They marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even winds in the sea obey him? And maybe I can interject here. What sort of man is this that he could sleep right through it? Clearly more than just a man, right? Jesus was never worried. He didn't stress out. He never laid awake at night thinking, oh no, what might happen tomorrow if I don't do this or if God doesn't do this or if they don't do this? He never panicked like we panic. He could snap his fingers and those problems would go away. Yet, he had a sleepless night. I mean, he could sleep through a storm. What could keep him awake? You think if he could sleep through a hurricane and just wake up and tell it to calm down, what could ever cause him to be restless? And if something could, and something did, 
If something could, wouldn't that suggest it's something we ought to pay special attention to? I bet. The night before Jesus died, the night before he would go to the cross and suffer and die for our sins, to set in motion all that has taken place over the last 2,000 years, Jesus lay awake in a garden that he often went to pray to. However, Jesus was not sleepless out of concern for himself. He wasn't stressing over the pain or the loss. Does anybody remember what Jesus lay awake and prayed intently about that last night of his earthly ministry? What specific issue kept him awake that night? Division. Jesus was kept awake by the potential for division to divide his church, to make an impact on his church, to damage his church, and the fallout that might would come from it. That's what kept Jesus up all night. What this puts in perspective for us more than anything is that Jesus went to the cross to die and purchase his church. His church would not and does not, uh, is not an infinite number of individuals, but would be a single body with room for everyone. He didn't pray for people all scattered around in their own little corners. He prayed for the body of believers all brought together by his death. Jesus modeled through his ministry that he was organizing a movement. He was calling together a following. He was gathering together his church. The very fact that he lay awake the night before this most important day, praying that the church might evade and escape division and achieve and maintain unity, stresses the importance of the church and defines the nature of the church. We are all in this together. We are connected to one another. We are dependent on one another. We are called to one another. And this should perk all of our ears up. We only have full access to the presence and power of God when and if we are united together as the church. Did you hear that? That's what Jesus said. That's what he made clear in this prayer that he prayed that night he could not sleep. And that's why he prayed all night long for the life of the church for us to be unified. Because if division is ignored and allowed to dominate, we lose our anointing from God. We miss his full presence and power. That's a pretty big thing if true, isn't it? In case you weren't with us, don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' word for it. John 17, read the whole chapter, but he wraps it all up like this. Father, I pray that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe. So you see what's on the line here? That we can be one with God and each other with the same oneness that Jesus and his father had, which is a pretty big deal. I mean, if that, that, that's available. Why don't we want it? Why aren't we lined up to get it? Why aren't we doing whatever we got to do to get it? That they may be one like we are one, Father, so that, here's what's on the line, the world will not believe that you have sent me if they are not one. 
He says, the glory, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. The glory is the presence of God, the power of God that comes from unity in the people of God. And he defines it. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly. I mean, what, how can you get more one than one? But Jesus stresses perfectly one so that they, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you've loved me. That we have access to the same love and power from God that Jesus had. That's a relationship like none other, isn't it? Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. And the idea of being with him is that we might be on the same page as him, that we might be in his steps. This was Jesus' prayer and he prayed all night long and he could not sleep because to imagine a church that did not have this was deeply troubling. So Jesus envisioned a united church with the same sort of unity that he and the Father had, which you don't get much more united than that. Jesus envisioned us being united by the Holy Spirit of God, therefore full of his presence and his power. That's incredible, isn't it? Don't you want that? Don't we need that more than anything? Jesus stakes everything on unity here. Church growth, kingdom impact, the world's hope, all on unity. Now, there's a few reasons why this may sound in contrast to what most of us believe and have been taught about Christianity, the church, and how we relate to one another. We as a people and as a church and as a world have surrendered and submitted to the pressure and power of division. We have. We take our cues from division. We defend it, we justify it, and in some ways we support it. In some ways we like it. In some ways we revel in it. Not just as a necessary evil, but as something that we think is necessary. Religion has always tried to push the church away from where Jesus intended it to be. Religion has always tried to make us think, oh, unity's not important. Your relationship with each other isn't important. The world's divided. It's okay to be divided. The church should be divided. And you don't worry about what's going on over there or with them or with those. You just worry about you. Is that what Jesus prayed? Not, not at all. See, religion loves us to forget about our horizontal responsibility. As in left to right, side to side, person to person. Because in doing so, the church is emptied of God's power and presence. And of course, the devil wants that to happen. You see, Jesus made it clear that in order for the church to fulfill its vertical commission, as in the commission from God, we must be horizontally positioned to reach out to and to represent the Lord to each other and reach out to one another. In our world today, we've accepted division. We've embraced division. In many ways, we've upheld and supported division. Because when it comes to personally, politically, and even religiously, our nature loves to divide. Our nature is not our friend. Hear that clearly. 
Our nature is influenced by our enemy, God's enemy, the enemy that took Jesus to the cross, and yet Jesus took him to the cross and defeated him and buried him. The enemy that he defeated in his resurrection and since has passed along and offers us that same resurrection power. And don't we want that? But, 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 we cannot and will not experience and be empowered by his resurrection spirit if we don't make unity our non-negotiable foundation. As in, we don't even begin to build anything if we're not first united in pursuing unity. Because we know whatever is built will not amount to anything that glorifies God or is good for us. This is a big deal. Now, maybe this is not what you thought about having a conversation at church about on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's more heavy than you were expecting or interested in having. I understand that. Not really what I thought I'd be doing today. But hey, this is where God led me. And this is where, God, I, think, where I think God wants the whole church to camp out, especially in our world today. And here's why we have to have this conversation. And here's why we will not avoid it. If we avoid it, if we ignore it, it will mean that we'll be emptied of God's presence and God's power as a movement. Maybe we already have been. That's a whole other sermon. If we ignore it, and we're not going to because Jesus sweat drops of blood all night for this very initiative, that we might be one as he and the Father are one. We're not going to avoid it because Jesus said that we will not accomplish his will if we're not united together. And here's why else we're not going to avoid this conversation about unity. Because division is inevitable. Division is normal. It's natural. Division in our nature, we drift and divide and we defend it even to our detriment. Even if it's bad for us, we still defend it because there's just no other way around it. Justin, this world is what it is and we've got to divide because everybody's different. I hear you. Part of trusting in Jesus to save us, though, is to trust his will and words to sustain us. And if we're going to experience his full presence and power, we must not take his words about division lightly. We must take them seriously as well as his words about unity. Now, we're not just going to have this conversation pertaining to our little gathering, our local gathering, because that would be too easy. Of course, we what we're learning applies to our community here at Risen as it instructs us in our relationship with each other, but it also instructs us in how we are to relate to all Christians everywhere. Because God wants us to be united across local lines from one gathering to another, one tradition to another, one style to another. Now there's something in us that hears that and we think, well, that doesn't sound right. I mean, I don't, I don't really need, it doesn't matter how I'm dealing with those people. It's just about how I deal with my own people, even though we don't even deal with each other with a united spirit. That's a whole thing, right? But we don't want to hear, we, we hear that idea that we need to be unified with people of other traditions and other denominations. That's just not what we think is right. It's not necessary. Even though God's word literally says we should be one if we are going to make a difference in our world. Division has dominated our church culture so much that we take cues from it more than we take cues from God. We can only talk about this with regard to, we don't only talk about this in regard to our local church, but God wants us to have a kingdom impact. So we're going to take this across the lines into our community. 
And we're also going to seek to apply this beyond just Christian to Christian. We're going to aim to take this to the whole world. You say, well, that's, that's impossible. I hear you. Thankfully, there's a verse for that. If possible. Well, it's not possible. So thank you, Paul, for trying. Paul says, but as much as depends on you. Paul says, I know they won't ever budge. I know, I know, I know. If I heard your story and I heard how much they were way off base, I would agree with you. But this is about you. As far as it depends on you, seek to live at peace. Seek to establish unity. So our posture towards the world is going to be one of choosing unity and pursuing unity. Why? Because we want people to see that we've chosen Jesus and we're pursuing Jesus and Jesus is pursuing them and he has chosen them. And we believe the best chance we have to win them to Christ is to show them that we want them with us. Does that make sense? That the best chance to win somebody to Jesus is to make them feel like we want them to be with us. Sometimes we treat evangelism like a tag, you're it thing. We run away. The best way to win somebody is to make them feel wanted. Do you hear that? Jesus said, they won't know me through you if you aren't one with each other. And I believe that includes a desire to be one with them. The Bible says, unless we love people, they may never know God's love. James says, faith without works is dead. And a dead faith is not an attractive faith. So if people are ever going to be convinced that God loves them, they must first feel his love through us. Jesus said, they will only know you by your love. And they'll know me by your love for them, my love through you. If people are ever going to feel loved by us, they've got to first feel liked by us. Amen? Wanted by us. Does that make sense? We can't seek to show God's love to people if we don't even like them. And how can we like them if we aren't willing to and interested in being one with them, united with them? Now, I know this may sound too harmonious for you. This is pie in the sky. This is never going to happen. You know, if somebody has ever preached a version of Christianity that does not follow this vision, I'm not saying this to boast about myself, but that's, it's just not rooted in the Bible. There's a lot of people who preach Christianity as divisive and segmented and building walls and barriers, but that's not New Testament Christianity. It's just not. This is the message of the New Testament, a message and a call to unity. And the reason why this sounds so foreign to even Christians in the church is because we've accepted divisions. In many ways, we've embraced division. No wonder we've been emptied of God's power and presence. For so long, we've allowed religion to replace it with all the wrong convictions. And think about the shape we are in as a country. Think about the conditions our families are in. Think about how divided we are. Because we've allowed division to dominate. And church, I don't see God's people promoting unity. I see in many ways us digging our heels in, building up walls and retreating from the scene. And to think that this kept Jesus up before it all began. Can you imagine how he feels now? The movement he died for. The movement he prayed would be united no matter what. And even if you never buy into the church and its ministry, your own personal life, your own joy and your peace hinges on your willingness to choose unity over division. 
There's a world out there that's trying to make you as divided as ever, but God is calling you to unity, and this is for your heart. Now, I ask you to turn to Ephesians 4. We read a few verses. Ephesians 4 is a wake-up call for the church 2,000 years ago and now. Paul prayed. Paul, through the first half of this letter, has been reminding the church what they had been saved by, the grace of God, and how they've been saved into the body of Christ. He writes about how they are privileged to be a part of something that God's been working towards since the beginning of Jew and Gentile, men and women, slave and free, that we would be one. Paul actually prays back in the last chapter that for this purpose, that we might have the capacity to receive the full volume of God's presence and power, that we might be filled with the glory that Jesus prayed that we could have. So on the same paper, right, on the same page that Jesus was praying, Paul was repeating that. He prays for us to receive this. So let me ask you, do you want the full volume of God's presence and power? I mean, who doesn't? Do you want the full volume of the resurrection presence and power as demonstrated and displayed through Christ? Who wouldn't say yes? There are so many ideas about how to get this, what it looks like to have this, the impact God can make through us when we possess it. But Ephesians 4 is the simple, practical pathway that we can take to receive it. Ephesians 4, 1, Paul says, this is the only suitable pathway for God's people. He says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which which you were called. So Paul's saying, this is the pathway. I'm, I'm paving the way for you. This is the gate you should walk through. I beg you, walk this way. This is the only suitable pathway. It's the pathway that's worthy of our name. And then he details it in verse two and three. Here's how we're to walk. With lowliness, that's, that's humility, gentleness, with long-suffering, with love toward one another, endeavoring, so this is our goal, what we're walking towards, where we're walking, where we're headed towards, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So let me translate that for you in a little bit less wordiness. Our walk should be one of eagerness and hunger for unity. We get up every day and our goal as the church of God, the people of God, the followers of Jesus Christ, we're taking steps toward unity. And the devil's gonna give us many, many opportunities to divide and split and go away from each other and to wage war with each other. But our goal, our eagerness, our hunger is for unity. And there's four virtues given to us in verse 2 that are essential to receive or to to, to stay on this pathway and to arrive at unity. Humility, gentleness. We think about rabbits being gentle. We don't want to be gentle. Men, we don't want to be gentle. No one wants to be called a gentle person. That's because our flesh says, hey, that's not cool. That's not, that's not tough. That's not what we should aspire for. You'll get walked over if you're gentle. Humility, gentle, patience, and love. Now, I, we could do a sermon on each one of those four, but because I love you and don't want you to hate me at the end of this month, we're going to talk about all four today in a very brief few minutes. Humility, we'll do a sermon on all four, don't worry, but for right now, it's just today. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. 
let's break this down. For us to arrive at the full inheritance of God's people, for us to be filled with the full volume of God's presence and power as his church, we must choose and pursue unity. And for us to arrive at unity, we must walk in and with humility, gentleness, patience, and love. You know what that means? That means we have to repent of and be emptied of any and every opposite virtue of these four. Hold your heart, but we're going to get through this. That means if there is any arrogance and pride in our soul, we've got to repent of it and get rid of it. Because you'll never be humble if there is arrogance or pride. That means if there's any callousness or harshness, we got to repent of it. Because you'll never be gentle if you're callous and harsh. That means if there's any irritability or judgmentalness, that means you got to get rid of it because you'll never be patient with people if you are initially irritable and judgmental towards people. That means if there's any hatefulness and contempt towards people, we've got to repent and get rid of it because you'll never love somebody that you're hateful toward and have contempt for. You know why the church quit fighting for unity a long time ago? Because you know why we've accepted division? Because letting go of these is just asking too much. Hello? Letting go of these is just asking way too much. Our nature is full of these. It's why we're divided. If unity requires that, then we would just soon forego the fullness of God. The deceptiveness of religion and the craftiness of the enemy is such that he pretends to dangle the power and presence of God through other means. We buy it, we fall for it, we chase after it, and we're still empty. We're still empty. We feel good after one Sunday in church, and then we go home and it all, it's all over because that one service is not enough to get you there. It's a pathway we must take. This is the only way. We can't pray for it. You can't be anointed with it. You can't believe hard enough and get it. You can't just attend once in a while and get it. This is the only way because Jesus said, I am the way as am I'm the pathway. And Paul says, this is the pathway we must take. Now to make sure that we understand this, if you back up and you can read this on your own, but if you back up in chapter three, verse 14 through 21, Paul prays in verse 14, he literally says, I'm down on my knees praying for y'all praying for the whole family of God that you might be filled with and that you might have the full ability to receive the presence, power, and love of God. That's what he prays for from verses 14 through 21. That you might have the power of God, the fullness of God, verse 19, that you might understand that God can do above and beyond what you ever imagined through you if it's in you. And then he gets to chapter four and he says, but to get here, this is the pathway we must take. Paul calls us down this pathway of humility, this pathway of gentleness, patience, and love that will lead to unity, that will lead to the fullness of God. He reminds us why unity is the only option in verses four through seven. He says, you're in one body, there's one spirit, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one God, and he's calling you to be one. All of you 
are worshiping the same one God, the same one spirit, the same one savior. You've been given the same one faith, the same one baptism. So why do we think that we can just be so divided and and accept that as God's way? That's not okay. And we're not going to get there unless we accept that unity must be our goal. And all of us have been given gifts so that we might get there. The gift of God's grace. He goes on to say that God established the church to prepare the world. And through the church, through the New Testament ministry of the apostles and through the church's ministry ever since then, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, this is what it's all been about, verse 12. To equip us, for, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to edify the body of Christ. And what does that look like? Till we come to unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man or the perfect person to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So again, he repeats himself. I'm giving you this pathway so that you might be united together, that you might be full of the goodness, the presence, the power of God. That you might no longer be children tossed to and fro, verse 14, carried about with every wind of doctrine by trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, you might grow up in all things into him who is the head. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Underline that. Every part does its share. Every part does its share. You see what Paul is saying here? If we go down this pathway, we'll be saved from stumbling along individually and learn the value of community, but there will never be community unless there is unity. Comes right out of the word, doesn't it? Don't you see how important this is, church? And what if we went to the world with this posture? What if the church was united locally and broadly? If we went towards those who oppose us and that oppose us and that we oppose with the same virtues that that it took to unite us, then over time we could begin chipping away at those who may at first and may right now oppose us. And you say, well, Justin, that sounds like a lofty goal. I'll tell you this, it'll never happen at all if we don't take, take this pathway. It'll only get worse. We think we've got to fight the world with the same tactics it fights us with. And the devil wants us to believe that. But why fight fire with fire when you can use water? You know how and you know what overcomes arrogance and pride? Humility. You know what overcomes harshness and callousness? Gentleness. You know what overcomes irritation and judgment? Patience. You know what overcomes contempt and hatefulness? Love. And you know how we know this is true? Because who is our Savior? And what did He do? And how did He save us? By humility, gentleness, patience, and love. 
Jesus went up against all the arrogance and pridefulness of Judaism and Rome. And with humility, he had the last word. He went up against religion and the state and all their harshness and callousness. And with a gentle spirit, he had the last word. He went up against a world that was irritable and judgmental. And with patience and with grace, he had the last word. He went up and hung on a cross that represented hatefulness and contempt. And he poured out his love on that cross. And he rose again and the power of resurrection. You say these will never change the world. They did once. His resurrection power can dwell within us. His resurrection power and presence can work through us if we choose these four virtues. We know they work. We are products of their ability to save. But you know what these four things hinge on? What did Jesus come to do and what did he accomplish on the cross? He forgave us of our sins. He forgave so that this power of sin might be disarmed, that the penalty of sin might be undone. He made a predetermined decision to forgive us, which made these four virtues easy to display. You know why we resist this pathway? Because we feel like we're letting people get away with something when we're gentle, when we're patient, when we're humble, when we're loving. We feel like they're getting away with something, but don't we forget what God has done for us? What did God do for us? He forgave us. He washed us from guilt and shame, judgment and hell. Jesus showed that forgiveness has grave-breaking power, and he also showed that his resurrection spirit is a forgiving spirit. So bringing this all together, if we are going to obtain and retain the full volume of God's presence and power, we are going to have to be predisposed to forgive. If not, here's what happens. When we entertain and embody anything but a predisposition of forgiveness, we will choose hate over love. We'll choose irritation over patience. We'll choose harshness over gentleness. We'll choose arrogance over humility every single time. And the result, we will choose division over unity. Don't you see how we got in this mess? You say, Justin, we don't live in a harmonious world. We don't live in a world where this is possible. What is impossible with man is made possible with God. What did Jesus say in John 17? Father, sanctify them in this truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into this world, so I send them. And what is he sending us to do? Who is he sending us to be? He is sending us to on the same mission that he came on, to be a force of forgiveness and thereby pursue unity. To choose forgiveness first and fast. Because if you don't choose it first, you'll never choose it. And if you don't choose it quickly, something else will get in the way. If we choose forgiveness first and fast, we'll be more present, less distant, and much more invested. Not just on the mission field, but at home, at work, in our churches. What if we were recognized as a forgiving people first and foremost? People that recognize our God as a forgiving God, I think people would see that. 
If we choose humility and gentleness, patience and love, if we choose forgiveness, if we choose unity, maybe, just maybe, if we displayed these, people might see what God can do for them, what he has done for us. Paul prayed that we might have the capacity for God's full measure, full volume. My question for us today is, do we want it? Do we pray for it in places like this? This is the only way to get it. This is the work the Holy Spirit wants to do through you. And at the end of chapter four, listen to what Paul, listen to his plea. Verse number 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, the resurrection power of God. Do not grieve him by choosing harshness, by choosing contempt, by choosing impatience, by choosing arrogance and pride because he wants to use you. He sealed you for the day of redemption. He wants to use you right now. So therefore, let all bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as, even as, even as God in Christ forgave you. You see what all this is pretty much making clear to us is when we're not a forgiving people, we're not a spiritual people. Oh, I know there's a lot of self-proclaimed spiritual people and they're holy. They sing loud and they dress right and they look good, but they're angry and they're unsettled and they're bitter and they're combative and they're divisive. They're not spiritual. That's the opposite of what the Spirit of God wants to be in us and what he wants from us. Let me ask you this. Are you angry? Are you just angry at things, at people? Are you easily angered? What aggravates you about the world, about our families, about your situation? What makes you impatient? What makes you harsh? Who do you hold in contempt? Who do you blame? all the world's problems on. Could it be that what you need to do towards a certain group of people, towards a certain person, maybe even towards God, is forgive them? Could it be that our heart has become bitter and hard? We've become brash and cold and rigid because we've allowed unforgiveness to establish itself as a force within us. And as a result, we've settled for division. If you have a place there at Luke 17, otherwise I can read it to you. Listen to what Jesus said. It'll be familiar. We looked at this last week, but this is a different different version of it. And he said to the disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come or it's inevitable that offenses and divisions will come. Woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall, you must forgive him. Let me ask you this though. How many of us were standing at the foot of the cross saying, forgive me when Jesus said you're forgiven? 
How many of us were there when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do? None of us. How many of us did he withhold or has he withheld forgiveness from? None of us. The disciples said in response to that, Lord, increase our faith because we don't have that kind of faith to forgive people. We can't do that. And then Jesus warns them. If you have faith as the mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the root and be planted into the sea and it would obey you. Mulberry trees have invasive shallow roots that will come to the surface from far distances from the trunk. If they're in proximity of a home, they can threaten the foundation. They can be a walking hazard to anybody nearby. You see what Jesus is saying? Unforgiveness is toxic and detrimental to the whole house, the whole church, the whole world. There's no excuse for it. You know what happens when we let unforgiveness take over? It makes us miserable. It kills our ability to be ministered to and it kills our spirit to do ministry. For many of us, we've got roots of arrogance, harshness, impatience, and hatred and anger. We've got roots of unforgiveness. We must choose forgiveness. We must choose humility, gentleness, patience, and love because this is how God has chosen to address us. This is his posture towards us. Come on, the resurrection power of God wants to work through your life. He wants to give you peace and give you joy. He wants to use you for the kingdom of God. Don't you know that God in Christ has forgiven you? He's taken the eraser and he's cleaned the board off. And every time you add to that board, his eraser wipes it right off again and again because the blood of Jesus Christ washes you from all the sins you could ever commit. And who are we to withhold forgiveness from somebody? When Jesus is literally in heaven washing away every sin we ever commit. Who are we to be hateful and divisive when God has made us one in him? Don't you see how we got into this mess as a world? And shouldn't the Christians be the people on the front line saying, let's fix it? It'll make us happier people if we have an ambition to make this known. Maybe you've never felt forgiven of your sins and it's hard to imagine forgiving others because you don't feel forgiven. Let it be known today that God, who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, God, through Jesus Christ, took every one of your sins you ever imagined, entertained, or committed and repeated. He took them, he nailed them to the cross. Jesus said, it is finished. They are forgiven. Every wrong you ever have, did, ever have done, every time you've broken God's law or harmed other people, it was buried with him. And the promise of God's forgiveness over you, it was overwhelmed by the grave. Jesus came back to life because the spiritual power of God is a forgiving power of God. And he forgave every one of us in his resurrection. And if we have a place, then every other person for whom Christ died has a place. But they may never know it if we don't show it. The peace that you feel when reminded of or first told about salvation, the peace that makes us feel accepted and loved, valued and chosen, 
Imagine what that, could, that peace could do to even your worst enemies. So, what if we chose to forgive like God has forgiven us? What if we chose to be humble, kind, patient, and loving toward our broken world? What if we could make a difference in our world just like Jesus made a difference in us? Let's not quench the spirit any longer. We are a forgiven people. Let's be a forgiving people. For every speck of division, let's be a people of unity. Just as God restored us to him, may we restore relationships in homes, communities, even our country by the power of forgiveness. It will only happen if we choose to forgive like he's forgiven us. It will only happen when we choose humility, kindness, patience, and love. Maybe today you need to be renewed in your forgiveness so that you might go and extend it with a fresh passion and joy. Maybe you need to be reminded that God has forgiven you and have the passion and joy that comes from that reminder to go out and extend it. Maybe you need to ask God to give you a humble, gentle, patient, loving heart. Maybe you need to ask God to give you the strength and courage to go out and forgive somebody today and let go of something that we're angry at about this world. It may not be a person to go to. It may just be an idea to let go of. Maybe we need to pray, increase our faith so that these roots of bitterness may be cut up and pulled up so that we might receive the full measure and the full volume of God's presence and power. Will you choose unity today? Forgiveness is where it starts. Jesus did. How can we not? I know this might sound a little bit tough, but if you can't, come and tell God that you can't share with somebody else what he's given to you. Just tell him that. Be honest with him. Say, God, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. Maybe just saying that out loud will make the spirit of God break your heart and give you repentance and remind you, how in the world could I be forgiven and not forgive? How in the world could God be humble and kind and loving and patient towards me and I not give that to the world? No wonder we're divided. You hold the eraser. What are you going to do with it? Your capacity to receive the fullness of God depends on pursuing this pathway. Will you choose unity? God has been so good to us. How could we not? Let me pray for you. Father, we come to you this morning just humbled by the cross. Lord, I've got to confess that there are days that I don't want to forgive people. There are days that I remember something that someone did against me and I'm angry all over at them again. There are days that I look at this world and I blame those people and that group of people and that political party and this country and I get so angry at everybody and everyone around me. I point the finger and I build walls and I tear down bridges and I get so divisive. There are days when I can be so hateful and so contemptuous. I can be so callous and so rigid. <laughs> there are days that I'm so arrogant and so prideful. There are days when I'm so harsh and so irritable. And shame on me 
for taking from you the goodness and the grace and the love of Jesus and acting as if I have any excuse to not share with the world what you've shared with me. Lord, if I would, this whole church would be united together because maybe I'm the missing link. If I would, our community would be united because maybe I'm the missing link. If I would, maybe our world would be united because maybe I'm the missing link. But even if I'm just one of many, I don't want to be the one that's standing in the way. Father, would you humble every heart under the goodness that we're about to sing about? And help us to see this pathway illuminated in front of us and help us to take it before it is too late, before division has full control. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.